this vermin has held the world hostage with his egotism and his lack of simple good manners. something uh joaquin phoenix definitely chose to fucking take an artistic you make an artistic decision to do what he wanted so um i guess welcome back to the left is dead it's another movie episode uh let's start with uh discussing well we're talking about napoleon folks and this perfect movie made for this perfect show um first thoughts go ahead Definitely a historical vibes kind of movie, episodic uh, context is kind of, I mean, you can't make a movie about Napoleon that would adequately contextualize everything, but you have this English filmmaker, Ridley Scott, open himself up to charges of like British propaganda that's anti-Napoleon. I've seen that around. Not There's all sorts wrong. of goofy stuff. Yeah, not wrong. And also just sort of like it kind of feels like how I feel like Americans today, their view of the Roman Empire, they got from like the Star Wars prequels. Yeah, and like Shakespeare, <laughs> right? It's like a yeah. sort of secondhand thing. Um, Ridley Scott, I'll say to start, The Duelist is a genius movie. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The Duelist is a great movie. Um, the Duelist ending with Harvey Keitel's character being sad that he basically can't duel anymore is a good movie. Uh, this movie... Shit, I don't know how to... It's good, but it's bad. I don't know how to really put that into words, but it, it's good, but it's bad. Um, a lot of goofy stuff falls to the thing that damages all Napoleon movies, I think. And that's a, a fixation on his relationship with Josephine. Because if you're going to do a Napoleon movie about his whole life, and to be fair, Ridley Scott says there's a like a, a Snyder cut coming, like a four-hour cut once it hits Apple TV. Which we will be watching, I'm sorry. But... yes. But, I hear they make fun of the Napoleonic code in that too. So, yeah, not having a king, uh, awful. <laughs> I guess getting a new king in reality, but still, like, what an awful thing that made like Latin America possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the continental system, what an awful thing to try and drag out like a fight with the British who are literally at war with the Americans during the time. It's a very strange, like, alliance drawer here, you know? It's odd. I was thinking about the absence of North America because 
it's yeah. it doesn't mention Haiti, uh, but we lot. see a bunch of Creole. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, okay. We'll get to yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. But we'll get to the who's making the arrest and stuff like that. And also, um, I don't think the word Spain is ever uttered in this movie, which is a crazy thing to think about. But I did appreciate it for whatever it is. I'm not sure what it is, but it is something. And uh, I do like Jokerfied Spectrum <laughs> Napoleon. I think it's funny. I do think it's funny because, like, this is, I don't know, it's 180 years ago. Who gives a shit now? You know what I mean? It doesn't affect me, but it is funny. Um, I suppose we'll just, let's run through it. I mean, where do we start? We start with, we don't even do artillery school, right? We don't, we don't do uh, the fact, the Corsican nationalists. We don't do any of that. All that out the window. No Corsica. Corsica is just a rock that you know of through, like, Napoleon a couple of times saying, I don't want to be associated with Corsica. So it's a good start. Um, oh, okay. I guess we open up with Marie Antoinette. Hilarious. Right. Um, what did you think about the, oh, I don't like the disorder scene? Well, Marie Antoinette played by an Irish actor. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, uh, <laughs> Josephine's younger than Napoleon in this movie, and Napoleon is the age that yeah. he was, like, about three years before he died on St. Helen. All right, so it's important to remember nobody's age or, like, race is correct in this movie. There was no attempt at de-aging in this scene, was there? No, no, I don't not think at all, so. not at all. Joaquin Phoenix is definitely 49 years old when he's, like, putting down the insurgency, the, the royalist uprising in this movie. Not historically, let's say that, but in this movie. So we start with Marie Antoinette. A um, lot of like weird historical inaccuracies here, right? Napoleon definitely wasn't at the execution. And we'll run through the kind of the revolutionary years real quick, but Robespierre definitely didn't kill himself in the convention or try to kill himself in the convention. You know, we know that the um, the Paris Commune, basically the predecessor to like the actual commune, the Paris Communards are the first people to basically free Robespierre from custody and allow him to try and shoot himself in, uh, I believe, the Palais Royale, or it would have been, it might be the Hotel de Ville. But either way, the Jacobins are hiding out when Robespierre tries to kill himself. It's definitely, fat Robespierre does definitely not try to kill himself at the convention. Um, Danton, Is this the first fat Robespierre on film? I think so. He looks more like Danton. I think they merged him and Danton for this movie, yeah. it seems like. You know what I mean? Because they don't even say who he is, right? I'm, I don't think there's ever any mention of the Jacobins or Robespierre. There's a mention of like revolutionary fervor, but there's not any real like specifics. Which, okay, first like real big fucking bug for me. Napoleon was a Jacobin. There's no way Barat was sitting him down and talking to him about how they had to remove the Jacobins. He was in jail for a few days during like the actual, you know, the Thermidorian reaction. 
you know, Napoleon, his brother, I believe, go to jail because they're Jacobins. There's no way anyone was sitting him down in the back room of the convention going, hey, buddy, we got to get rid of this Robespierre fella. And this is also maybe a point where Ridley Scott steps or he uses Napoleon to step in for his view of history because Napoleon's like nodding off when politics is explained to him about what's happening with Robespierre and whatnot. Right. And it's, it seems like that's Ridley Scott just commenting like the politics is too too boring. We got to get to the general where all right. the power is. He did state like he doesn't care, right? I mean, that's his statement on this film. Like, I don't care. I don't care that most of Austerlitz wasn't fought like that. I don't care that Robespierre didn't kill himself like that. I don't care that Napoleon was a Jacobin. I don't care that Josephine was older. There's a lot of I don't cares in this movie. <laughs> but it's still funny. I mean, I got to give it to him. For like a piece of anti-Napoleon propaganda in the modern era, pretty funny, you know? Because we have Marie Antoinette, like, horrified by this, even though he's a Jacobin and he goes in his advances to his Jacobin, to the Jacobins and his Jacobin brother. Toss it out. Um, I think it, it's, where do we go from there? Barah gives him the appointment at Toulon. Right. Which is, I believe Napoleon was on his way to Spain. He wasn't actually intended to be at Toulon. Um, Toulon was definitely not guarded by a fort in the, the standard sense of the the you know the term or the way it's portrayed in this movie. Like the siege embankments and things like that are pretty funny because you know like the, the ladders going up the wall, Napoleon running up the wall with the saber out and stuff like that. I really do enjoy that, but it's it's a fantasy. I mean, his horse was shot out from under him. This was probably the one battle where he was on a horse like that. But it, it starts out, I'll say the military victories, they're so, besides Austerlitz, they're so detached from the plot in this movie. It's so strange to make these big scenes out of them, right? And just what does Toulon end up becoming besides like, Napoleon showing his mom and his brother that he's not Corsican trash. And also artillery is all about geometry. That's the bookend from beginning to end of the movie. That seems to be like his artillery thing. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. I, don't know. I, I yeah. think that's always going to get emphasized in a Napoleon movie because that is like the famous thing about him is he's an artillery officer. Right. I mean, say we will, that is like his job. I, I think that, I think that's why they missed an opportunity in early life, though. I mean, he's a Corsican rebel. His dad is a, a Corsican nationalist. Um, the family that he comes from, it's not that they're like scum. I mean, they're just broke nobility. They're face their nobility facing like the realities of capitalism oncoming, right? They live on a basically a, a, ter a terribly provincial island. Um, Napoleon is originally known as, uh, I believe, Napoleon Bonaparte or something like that. And he does have an Italian name because he comes from Corsica. It's a disputed territory with the Corsican nationalists. He's, uh, I can't, I'm blanking on the name, but I mean, he's raised by the Corsican nationalists, right? That's where he learns to fight and where he learns some 
type of like how he learns the strength of patriotism there, right? He is bred in the the ranks of the Cors- Corsican nationalists who are neither Italian nor French. And he, he has a very Italian name when he first gets to France. I don't know. I don't know how much you know. I don't, I mean, I don't know how much you like focus on this period or not, but no, no, I, I, I know very little about this period of Napoleon's life or Napoleon in general, but especially this part, but it's interesting that Corsica becomes just another rock like uh, St. Helena. Yeah. I mean, it's it, not it, too that's far from Elba. It's not too far yeah. from Elba for that matter. I mean, it is, yeah. it's a Mediterranean rock and it, it's not relevant. I, I, the Spanish, when the French take it, I believe during Louis the Fifteenth, maybe the Sun King, you know, the good one, the smart one. Um, I do believe that that the the Spanish basically just say, "Look, who cares?" You know, it's like losing the Falkland Islands when the British lose that in like modern context. Like, I guess, but who gives a shit? You know, and I I think it's funny to just draw that out and draw uh, like to blank it out and then blank out the fact that like this is like an italian guy in like a french artillery school and stuff like that it is a pretty wild concept you know what i mean so it's interesting to see what ridley scott jumps into right away and that's napoleon at the revolution which i don't think is quite as relevant as anybody thinks it i'm pretty sure he was busy at the time i don't i i know he was not in paris I don't know. What do you think, like, Ridley Scott's, like, does he seem like, he, he does seem like the revolution is a tragedy kind of guy, but he's also anti-Napoleon, right? Maybe he's just British. He's anti-French. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What is Ridley Scott's, like, British politics? I don't know either. Yeah. I like Tony Scott better. I mean, Tony Scott's the guy who was like snorting coke and telling like the U.S. Navy to turn the aircraft carrier around for a better sunset shot. Like, I respect Tony much more. <laughs> you know what I mean? But Ridley, I mean, Ridley Scott's like what alien and all that kind of shit. Like, he's a great director. And yeah. the one thing I will say I do like is like when the battle scenes happen in this movie, or even like the overviews, like when um. And we'll get to like Borodino and the like the March on Russia and stuff like that. But like the Borodino, the Borodino overlay as like it's explaining the casualties and things like that. Like I enjoy it. You know, it, it looks cool, but it's the story is just really lacking because I mean, the second, I suppose it's too long. And then there's the Royalist Uprising, which is a hilarious scene where like, oh, they're like, they're like water rights protesters are like black lives look they're unarmed <laughs> yeah <laughs> which i think like even like with the basic knowledge of french history you know that's not true yeah yeah like um they're waving like the fleur de lis flags they're waving like the bourbon family flag and stuff like that and like they're just what carrying bottles and things like that when and i gotta say disappointed no whiff of grape shot line yeah, what what was up with the artillery? Because like, I mean, I've read. Yeah, this is Napoleon's like big moment as becoming like leading up to becoming first consul, right? It is the mm-hmm. idea that he puts down the royalist rebellion. These are people who are a lot of them are like 
disenfranchised soldiers who have managed to hang over through the revolution. Um, like I said, royalist, pro-Bourbon family, and these people are armed. There's ex-soldiers, you know, and I think that it's funny to put it so out of context because like this is very much, you know, Napoleon was originally thought, you know, it was thought he was going to be assigned to like the Vembe or something like that. He was going to be putting down counter-revolutionaries. So it's important to remember that these are like anti-Republicans and they had, they definitely had weapons. And I think that Napoleon's about 24 when that happens, but that is where the, the famous line, like I gave them a whip of grape shot comes from because he does, oh. fire, he does use the artillery at the convention hmm. to fire uh, grape shot into a fucking closed formation crowd. But again, it's crowded like ex-militia, ex-soldiers and stuff like that. They know what they're doing with the firearm and they know how to stand in formation. That's what they're paid to do and that's what they were doing before that. But it is, a, it is where he sort of, he proves his loyalty, right? I mean, if there's nothing that he was ever saying, it, it, he was always pretending to be a Republican, regardless of what he was, you know? Until he was emperor, I mean, there was the pretense of being a Republican, which I gotta say, funniest scene in this movie is <laughs> fucking the coup yeah, yeah yeah i love it yeah it's great yeah <laughs> that was one of my favorite scenes <laughs> that was hilarious oh yeah so you have the royalist uprising and then you move on to what's next shit egypt i guess right uh well josephine. do you even want to talk about josephine wooing josephine he meets Josephine in some weird yeah. realistic way where he's like staring at her tits hanging out at like a poker game or something. Yeah, he's acting all very, very quiet and he's, aloof. He's, he's antisocial. He's autistic. Like, he doesn't understand social cues. What little I've read is like he knew social rules, but he'd break them. Like, yeah. he understands. He yeah, and I'm sorry, a guy who like slept with that many women probably i don't know it just doesn't fit right yeah like this is know. a man who climbed his way up to emperor you know what i yeah, mean yeah yeah from like <laughs> shit heel nobility i'm sure he's like he's more used to i mean he crowned himself emperor like to break social norms as is you know the yeah man that's was like more yeah. rude than he was like submissive or like demure like awkward or whatever i feel like ridley scott may have thought okay how do i portray this man as antisocial, but have people around him that just kind of position him to becoming consul and then emperor yeah yeah and that's basically what happens like before the hundred days when we get mm -hmm. to the end of the movie you know there's no explanation right and yeah there's no context like that that's what drives me nuts about this movie too is australis focuses so heavy like yeah victory wise choice like the prats taking the prats and heights and like driving the austrians off and like catching the russians off guard like genius military move but like austerlitz is not it you know it's not all of it again mm -hmm. spain not mentioned mm -hmm. um egypt what do you get well, i mean you want to go through the plot of egypt real quick he this is after he meets josephine right the bat yeah right yeah skipping the josephine thing i mean josephine she's depicted as like someone who was forced by the revolution to uh debase herself to lose her 
aristocratic virtues as a woman oh, and mother, I, you know. I do like the sword scene. We're like, oh. <laughs> where's we the names on the swords? Yeah, we didn't keep any <laughs> names with them. I'm surprised they're not in a pile in that scene. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're all neatly racked yeah. up. Yeah, I'm surprised they're not just tossed in a basement somewhere. I I kind of thought that that scene was leading to like Josephine saying, "This isn't his sword or something." Yeah, I do for a second, <laughs> and but then like, it's I, like, "Nope, I'll take this one." Sure, I think that I'll one's too. I think that's too far off of like historical accuracy even for him. Yeah. Like, just be like, no, they fought over the sword, you know. But like, it is hilarious just to be like, yeah, nobody in the revolution was keeping track of the fucking names. Yeah, like, who gives a shit? They're dead now. I'd like to go back and see what the actual <laughs> law was at this point about uh, people being armed. Yeah, not true. Not true. Not true. Not true <laughs> at any point in like French history like that. Not <laughs> as long as like automatic, you know, semi-automatic weapons weren't available absolutely not true it's just not a factual statement the idea that like a frenchman couldn't have a, a saber is such a ridiculous fucking idea maybe they <laughs> couldn't have a cavalry saber from the military mm. but they could definitely have like a large knife and a musket you know what i mean mm -hmm. people hunted at this point and this is the the feudalism had just ended this was a huge yep. thing like you have to think about how people were like living at that point where it's like totally different from living on like a lord's property or something like that and you have like this burgeoning like industrial proletariat and stuff like that these aren't these are people living in like slums and people living in the countryside you know there is like a manner of self-defense and I, I it's ridiculous to say like french people weren't armed i mean yeah even, even saint juice who's like 17 when he goes to join robespierre in paris he he steals like a display pistol off his mother's shelf and i believe he used it to steal a real pistol later yeah <laughs> you know it, it's uh, one of the most famous scenes is in the cafes in paris when the, you know the gunshots fired out and basically you know their line of like give me liberty or give me death is like uttered out you know and this is look at liberty leading the people the famous painting you know, with a child who has a gun in the front of that one. You know, these are classic historic French symbols of, like, having firearms at all times. Like, that was not a rare thing. Yeah, I like how the one time a firearm is, or, like, a handgun is used is Robespierre. Yeah. <laughs> it's a misfire, He's yeah. Got, like, a derringer for some reason, but yeah. Yeah, and very then strange. I think that, yeah, there's not really, like, much, there's not really any restrictions on anything like that yet i mean look at what time it was you know it was the 1800s like it was early 1800s you know barely um that's what i'm saying like the royalist uprising and yeah. armed insurgency not a peaceful crowd of peaceful protesters you know yeah. they were looting they burned down a walgreens <laughs> <laughs> and i so... think they were on fentanyl <laughs> <laughs> uh so there's this wooing scene, and then we're in Egypt, and there's a a battle in front of the pyramids, which did not happen. No. And basically, <laughs> this is probably the most dismissive episode of history for because like it just shows some leader in Egypt falls off his horse, apparently dead, and then uh, Napoleon <laughs> immediately talks to a mummy and can't hear anything from the mummy, and then that's it. You this know, is that's the expedition. Egypt. And like the invasion that found the Rosetta Stone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like this yeah. is the, this is the reason we can like translate Egyptian and shit like that. You know what I mean? Like this is so crazy to portray him as like poking at a mummy's face. And we'll say Napoleon stands up on a stool, 
and just like what listen pokes at a mummy's face puts his head on top of the sarcophagus pokes at the mummy's face and listens to see if he can hear anything from him there's a whole there's a whole series of moments in this movie where it seems to be scott indicating that he via napoleon doesn't care about history yeah and just the (laughs) empires are like who cares right yeah yeah and it's crazy because yeah like you said battle of the pyramids you could see the pyramids i guess if you were on like the right side you know whatever right flank was to whoever you know if you were on the correct flank you could see the pyramids off in the distance but if you're on the other flank like forget it you know and this is before smokeless powder or anything too so you're blind anyway but nobody really saw the pyramids except maybe like an outer flank of both these armies um shooting at the pyramid i'm surprised it wasn't full-on shooting the sphinx's nose off because i mean that is the story right yeah i i will say i will say napoleon did some funny stuff it's sad that we miss out on italy because like when napoleon's troops march into rome they're keeping horses in the sistine chapel and just throwing rocks at the ceiling (laughs) they don't care it's very funny it's not supposed to be funny but like it's pretty funny just not getting, it's just being from like the revolutionary armies and not giving a shit from being like levee en masse where like they're pulling like 20,000 people at a time and shit like that for the military like who cares like i do admire that i the spain the spanish campaign i mean his own brothers in charge or yeah his own brothers in charge of spain after they take over you know and um i mean missing out on the marshals is another critical you know fall of this movie i think because if if there's anything that's genius, it's some of the, like the field marshals that Napoleon had under him. You see Davu, who would be the one with the giant hat and the fucking glasses. You see him at Waterloo with like the tasseled hat and shit like that. Yeah, Davu would would have been like Davu is actually probably the best field marshal, but he was actually put in charge of the defense of Paris until Waterloo. And he, he was the one who rallied Napoleon's army again in the 100 days when he returns to France. But unfortunately, it Davout got kind of sidelined by like um, Field Marshal Ney, who is a cavalry officer, and Marat, who actually was the king of Italy for a moment. Um, he was a, a married to Napoleon's sister. And then Marat goes back to Italy after... I believe maybe during the hundred days or like right after the hundred days, he tries to retake his spot as king and they kill him. (laughs) So, so they weren't fans, but it's, and it's also, I mean, you miss a lot on by them, like sort of amalgamating Napoleon's brother into one person, Napoleon's siblings into one person. You miss a lot that I think you could really mind a lot more depth from because I mean, Napoleon puts his own like brother-in-law in charge of Sweden and he, you know, declares neutrality with the Austrians during the Russian invasion. You know, these are wild family relations. You know, he's marrying off his sisters. I do think it's funny that, like, when he offers to marry, uh, marry the Russian czar's sister, they're like, oh, she's only 15. It's like, okay. Like, yeah, that's a standard for you people all of a sudden. That, that scene is like, you know, you and me, we we sure do hate the British. What are, what is your sister up to? <laughs> yeah, 
Which like, is kind of how aristocratic marriage worked back then. Marie but that... Antoinette was like 14 or something like that. You yeah, know what I mean, the yeah. lady who got killed in the beginning of the movie was like a 14 year old when she got sold to France by the Austrians. Yeah. Like to think that like the czar would be disgusted. Like they make it look like Napoleon's some type of pedophile or something like that. And then they really, they really don't hammer in on that second wife. Like that's that's a sister of the Austrian emperor. Like you really need to focus on this. Like there's a reason that he marries just like this random lady who walks in his house, you know. But back to Egypt, I guess, real quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is funny that like. Yeah, age is a little weird because you have this dashing young uh, Tsar Alexander the first. But yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah it but... is. It is strange. They make him like a, like a 21 year old and like he would have looked like shit, too. I mean, he's an inbred yeah. like Anglo-Saxon. You know what I mean? He's from the same. You're either like an Anglo-Saxon who's like less deformed or you're like a fucking Habsburg who's more deformed. Those are your choices at the time, you know? They're the French, basically. It's, it's one of those three and the French are in exile at that point. But I, I think the Egypt stuff is pretty funny because it, it literally, like, how do they, they win the battle of the pyramids by shooting the pyramid and yeah, making the guy, making the uh, Mameluk general fall off his horse which I guess shows them, which is crazy because like, this is where like infantry squares were invented, you know, and like really tested the idea of like resisting a cavalry charge, but there's a corpse. Oh, dang. Well, that would have been great before showing Waterloo. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. It's crazy. Right? It's, <laughs> where it's depicted in Waterloo. Yeah. It is wild because like cavalry was cavalry had become so heavy in like the, these European wars where it wasn't, it's not like that in the American revolution or anything like that, obviously, or like the colonial fights, you know, these are more foot-based wars. Obviously there is cavalry, but it's just not the same. And Napoleon's also the first to use like cavalry, like light rifles and things like that. So he has a much more like versatile cavalry and a much more, in fact, one of his tactics was he would charge the cavalry out, get the other people to square up, and then draw them back and just start firing the cannons because he was an artillery officer at heart. And once you're formed up in that square, fucking four thick, you know, four sides, if you can get the corner of that thing, you're taking out like 18 people, you know? If you can bounce your cannonball right and launch into a square of people, you got them. So like the cavalry charges often uses like a fake with Napoleon, but yeah, it, it is wild to think that they don't show anything at this battle of the pyramids because it's like, this is a huge moment for him. Like, I mean, he had, and well, yeah, he wins this giant battle where he like, he, he utilizes these very new tactics, but then he starts losing to the Ottoman Empire. But it turns out he actually goes back to France because Josephine is fucking a grenadier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, okay, that's probably the that that is a real weak part of the movie because he goes back to France because of uh the well, the let's say it's old. true it's true it is true that Josephine is fucking a grenadier at that yeah point. yeah but Napoleon doesn't leave Egypt because of that no he's right? losing <laughs> yeah <laughs> why do you think the British have the Rosetta Stone yeah yeah he's so, lost control of it it's like it, you show Egypt, but you don't show any of the interesting stuff. Um, the movie does kind of move pretty 
fast is like what is france even doing there yeah, yeah. um this is kind of also like just roman history this is where napoleon has success as a general becomes really famous and that's when he can go back to paris to take power you know it is like the british oeuvre of history right where like the british aren't involved somehow that too yeah even though you know they're involved this entire time like the reason he leaves egypt is because of the british yeah the reason he doesn't go to india instead of russia is because of the british yeah you get one moment around this time actually where he gets mad at the english uh diplomatic mission for having boats which <laughs> you think you're so special because you have boats. yeah it's not wrong <laughs> yeah it's not wrong it's a good line yeah (laughs) i do love the delivery of it yeah he definitely hated that the british had that shit he hated that they had a navy and i mean you and i were talking before the show um a little bit in in messages you know who knows what could have happened with like the new world and the french because like the british rule the seas even the americans who challenged them at the same time the napoleonic wars are going on nobody defeats the navy the navy doesn't go away you know, the Americans don't take that Navy. It's not until like the Civil War where the Americans have a formidable Navy, you know, and it, it, you don't, it doesn't get talked about. Like, who knows how it could have shaped out? But yeah, it's it's wild to see him just sort of return to France, famous for nothing. Famous for being cheated on, basically. <laughs> Which is wild because it's, you know, this is a time where he's put down he, he won the siege too long. He's put down the, the royalist insurrection. He's won multiple battles against like the Ottomans and in, in really like up into Syria and like almost into Palestine and stuff. You know, I mean, he made it quite a ways. He was just hoping to go even farther, but he does leave because he's losing. He definitely, everyone knows Josephine's cheating with that guy. And this is another thing that Napoleon has in common with Tsar Alexander the first is their enmity with the Turks, which this movie kind of centers Napoleon across from Alexander the first. I'm not, I mean, there's reasons why, but it it is said, it is to be said that like Alexander does make peace with the Turks before the Russian invasion that it, but that's so much later. And like the way, yeah. The way Napoleon talks to him, like he's not the cousin of the British royal family, is wild. You're right, he's placed as like a weird foil, right? I'm, yeah, why, why does Ridley Scott, so why did Ridley Scott make this movie? Not just like, why, why did he show Egypt if he showed all the boring stuff? Just to dismiss it, just to have this long mummy scene that doesn't tell you anything, shoot the pyramids, go back to Paris. Like, my best, what's he trying to do? My best guess is like trying to remake some of like the heart of the duelists, but with the larger story. You know, that's why it's so focused on Josephine, right? Like, that's why the focus is so much on, like, again, he leaves Egypt because he learns Josephine is cheating on him from, like, his brother, sister, cousin, all pushed into one, you know, who I guess was Lucien in the movie, right? It was Lucien Bonaparte, but, I mean, he has so many siblings that he's putting in power everywhere at that point. It doesn't really matter. 
but yeah, it, it, it's strange because it's just, it is like, it's supposed to be, um, and it really is like, it's, it's just, it's a goofy love story placed under everything. Right. I mean, we'll talk more about when he remarries and stuff, but like I, the, the way it goes, just like the obsession with Josephine is like so wild. Even Waterloo's like placed on Josephine basically. And which is so far off, like, this, this man had been divorced and like had another kid he had another wife you know he had a kid he had another wife i mean he he didn't give a shit about his other wife either or his kid when he came back you know, you know the hundred days was a big deal for him before like another reason the man went straight over to belgium you know he wasn't goofing off and talking about and talking to his wives and his child he had other things to do but it, yeah it's leaving egypt over like josephine cheating when it's not like it's funny because they show that and then they also show like sex between josephine and bonaparte where it's like very transactional it's meant to do one thing and one thing only and that's like create an heir right like yeah that's correct like that's not far off of how he thought about it so like when they were cheating on each other it was just basically like a tit for tat thing where it's like yeah well we'll just both keep cheating there's there's that like napoleon needs a air but also like didn't they invent and like don't they have like new like invent this like new sex position the zigzag maybe <laughs> like i don't think it was that transactional like they're they're sleeping around with too many people and isn't there like a tit for tat kind of like back and forth between napoleon yeah and that's really it it is like yeah. emotional like but it's so like disconnected from emotion at some point where it's like you know, this is a marriage of, like, this is a state marriage, essentially, you're the emperor, right, and I mean, she's the empress, and, like, you're both just openly cheating on each other back and forth, like, just as much, you know, literally, like, in an arms race for that shit, so it's, it's not. I wish we saw more of that, you yeah, know? That would be, yeah, that would be a nicer story, like, if you're gonna make the story, like, try and seem, like, complex and sad and tragic in some way, and, like, this deep you should incorporate much more of that yeah because we see her first famous lover hippolyte charles in the yeah. movie like he shows up but i mean i mean like the novelist balzac has a character based off this guy i mean it could have been a bit more fun yeah there's a lot there's a lot that could have been done i mean they do do a little bit where he does really got this bit where he puts him at the actual coronation. Mm -hmm. He shoves him in the crowd there just to show like Napoleon's like epically owning him online and shit, you know, <laughs> which I guess, I guess brings us back to um, the return to Paris because this is a, this is my favorite part of the movie. This is, <laughs> this is the uh, coup of 18th Brumaire where, um, when okay this is where we'll get to like the black soldiers who suddenly appear uh i do like Barra's resignation it's just like yeah i don't care i'll happily go back to being a citizen you know i do like the napoleon and his brothers begin arresting well not arresting but forcing the abdication of the consul and the consul's the consulate is just it, well, I guess it's the directory at that point because they become consuls. It's the directory. It's five members, I believe. These are the Thermidorians who 
despite having legislative support to take out Robespierre, did not really have a popular base. You know, there's not a huge call for conservatives, especially in Paris, where they're operating at this point. So, and especially among the army, you know, the army that had just seen the revolution beat back two coalitions already, funded by the English, with the Austrians, the, you know, the Prussians, this is a big deal. I mean, they've won because of the ability to like promote people from within the ranks and because of like the actual like ability to uh, mass conscript and have like a reason, you know, motivation for fighting too. It's not, you're not a random conscript pulled up from your village, like as you have been from like Roman times until the Napoleonic Wars, basically, you know, you have, you may not enjoy it, but like you're getting a reason to fight for something. You know, there is a reason that they're trying to come for you. And it, you realize you're not a feudal serf anymore. Or you're not, you know, indentured to somebody like that. Obviously, there's much more motivation. So the idea that, you know, this military is, it, I think that it really misses out on this in this movie too, is like, this is something special about this military. You know, the fact that yeah. Napoleon rises up is something special. It is, yeah. Even as like downwardly mobile nobility, it is special that he rises to this extent, and also that the army is part of the pro historically progressive things about Europe. You know, like this new army. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like why did left wingers have to like find ways to both attack and defend Napoleon simultaneously? You know. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that, like, the Bonapartist faction of, like, the French government is around long after his death, you know? I mean, that's how Napoleon III comes into power, is, like, these, you know, these guys who are septuagenarians at that point or whatever, but they're, they're still, they're alive, they're septuagenarians because, like, the innovations made under Napoleon, like, medicine and things like that, you know, in civil society and in, like, social safety nets and things, you know, they have their, even these, like, officers from the napoleonic era are given their pensions still when they're you know when the bourbons and then eventually the orleans or yeah the orleans come back into power you know like they're still given their pensions i mean i think we've talked on this podcast about les mis before where it's like you have a very strange family dynamic where you have like uh you have marius who's a shithead student you have his father who is a napoleonic you know, he's Napoleon appointed baron or like, you know, he, he's, he has a title of nobility appointed by Napoleon. And then you have his grandfather, who's like an old, like, Orleans, uh, Bourbon royalty, you know, he's Bourbon nobility, who is probably just a merchant or something like that. But either way, he had bought himself enough in the nobility, you have this very strange combination, but Bonapartism hangs around a long time. I mean, when Marx is around, the Bonapartists are still a faction in French politics. So it's important to remember, like, that, you know, I think that, and I think the world benefits in a way. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think you could argue against that, even if you think that maybe it's because of Napoleon's dismissiveness of the new world. Sure. But like, it benefited from that, didn't it? The fact that he didn't give a <laughs> shit about the Spanish colonies that he just basically inherited, you know? Yeah, I mean, that that's the weird thing. So, I mean, a few things. So, for example, um, one of the, so we do see, was his final rank general? Um, 
yeah, the Creole general Thomas Alexander Dumas yeah, does yeah. show up in this movie, um, barely. He's really interesting because he's in the uh, Italian campaign and the Egyptian campaign. Um, we see multiple Creole characters, but I don't think Haiti is ever mentioned. No. Um, which, if you wanted to make an anti-Napoleonic film, you would talk about um yeah, make him racist his role in yeah make him racist it's 2023 make him yeah. racist talk about his brother-in-law leclerc trying to re-enslave and genocide haiti but th that doesn't come up i'm not sure i mean i don't it's not that i think scott's trying to make an anti-napoleon propaganda film necessarily i'm just yeah i think he's just inherently anti-napoleon yeah i think it's just it's culturally anti-napoleon you know what i mean <laughs> yeah it's just ingrained in him. He doesn't necessarily know. It's like, I mean, it's like here being like anti-Hitler until like 10 years, you know, or like four years ago or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. if you just grew up in a, in a culture that watched the History Channel and like wiped the Soviet Union off of like the World War II histories. It was like, we did it, fellas. We liberated Auschwitz in Poland. You know, <laughs> <laughs> when you have that in the United States, like it's a sort of similar feeling. I think Ridley Scott probably comes up and, you know, I mean, Ridley Scott comes up in the air where like he makes a duelist in what, the 90s? Um, in the 70s would have been like the Waterloo movie, which is like a very like giant movie, you know, giant French production. But it is, you know, it's Napoleon losing. And I think that that's most of the stuff like i said most of the stuff you get is like that or it's josephine centric right i mean it's relationship centric and i think that by focusing again focusing on just josephine you really miss out on a lot of like the color of like his life because he had a lot yeah. of insane people around him and a lot of like good generals and marshals around him you know i mean again the, the revolutionary army and like the only probably the only time in history when like the meritocracy really applied yeah, and even yeah. by the even by the late empire, it kind of is gone because you know brothers, cousins, or whatever brother in laws are giving getting kingdoms, and their field marshals are jockeying for like who's going to be the favorite again because you have an emperor. You know, it does start to degrade. But I mean, Napoleon himself is a product of like probably the only time in history when there was a sort of like genuine meritocracy for a military like that. Because if you lost back in the day, you just got killed. Yeah, and it's kind of weird because, like, you know, Thomas Jefferson kind of, like, critical support for Napoleon kind of thing going on. Later, Marx uh, says that the British, in opposing Napoleon, were opposing the French Revolution. You know, it's like everyone has to find a way to say, well, you got to hand it to him. He progressed history, which... I don't yeah. know, but I've even spoken to like a super <laughs> pro-Russia guy, you know, and he's like, "Well, yeah, I guess in like this scenario, like the Russians were the gendarmes." Like, yeah, man. Like, yeah, this is yeah. That's they were defending the old order, like when you know, burning down their own cities to like keep you know keep this from spreading to like what keep their alliance with the British. Like, this is what made global capitalism. You know. It's not necessarily that Napoleon was some type of like anti-industrialist or anything like that, but there was going to there was a potential for some type of alternative or some type of like different philosophy behind the ruling system, right? 
Right, right. When his, uh, you know, there's this scene in the movie where his advisor, he's asking the advisor about Alexander the First and how he gets along with Britain. And uh, the guy says uh, they have more trade with Britain. And, you know, Napoleon's like, well, how do their courts do? You know, mm-hmm. how, 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 how does, uh, do the Russians have people in the British court, basically? And it's kind of like, yeah, what, what are the options here? Like, is there, you're fighting yeah. against the commerce of Britain? You know, that's a little bit in this movie. Yeah. And exactly did not see that, like, okay, well, like, it, and it's almost because, like, you can see Europe now is instilled with much more of these, like, liberal values that came out of this period, right? Whereas America is not, it is instilled with like the much more like Anglo values, you know, it is a consequence of history that like this country spoke English and it's not a great consequence, it's a horrible consequence, but I, the fact that this is like an Anglo country, it, it organized itself differently, whether it was a supply depot of raw materials for the United Kingdom or eventually a competitor with after, you know, the world wars and stuff like that, but it always considered itself in tandem with the United Kingdom, you know, or Britain at the time. Um, so I think that you, you sort of miss out because like, if you look at the continent now, it is much more of like a European liberal system that would have come out of that time. So we left off. Now we're at the coup. The coup, yeah. I love the coup. The consulship. Yeah. Um, he takes first consul. Well, yeah, they take the consulship by what? They ship him out to, I don't even know where they actually met at that point. But yeah, they ship the consul. They ship the directory yeah. out of town. Or they, and everyone who answers the directory is wondering why the directors aren't there. And that's because Napoleon has made them all surrender with the help of his black troops. Uh, and it is, I do like this scene. I love when he's running out the door and beating on hands like they tried to kill me. And then uh, Lucien Bonaparte pulls the sword on his saber on his brother. <laughs> My brother betrays the Republic, I'll kill him. <laughs> and the shrug and the, the eye roll and shit. Yeah, I do love it. It is great. Yeah, it is like, fun. I, yeah. It's a fun scene. I do like it. I, when he's hitting him through the door and shit like that. <laughs> falling down the steps i do like it and then coming back in with the fucking with basically the grenadier unit or like the imperial guard essentially what's going to become the imperial guard coming back in with them just shall we vote like i do like it yeah it's a funny scene yeah it's a funny dramatization (laughs) of like a weird coup that did happen basically like in a judicial chamber with no shots fired you know so it is funny to portray that like that it's 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 an interesting event to even think about because who the fuck knows what happened. So like mm-hmm. make your interpretation of that one, you know? <laughs> and then it's that scumbag Talleyrand who tells him to go too far after that. Yeah. Talleyrand was really funny. I don't know. Just a great character. He needs uh, his own movie. He does. Yeah. I, I, I always get a little disappointed seeing him because I'm only seeing part of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Come on. The guy lives from like the fucking estates general to like yeah. <laughs> not only like the bourbon restoration but like the orleans the orleans coming in after like the three glorious days 
So yeah. The guy's alive the whole time. Uh-huh. And not only alive, but in France. Never leaves. Yeah. And he has so much folklore around him, kind of like Napoleon. Like, for example, I remember trying to figure out if it was true that he and St. Simone tried to uh, basically salvage and sell off parts of uh, Notre Dame. I couldn't ver. I could not fact check that. He's but, part uh, of like the liaisons with the American Revolutionary, isn't he? Yeah, and he's involved with the was it the X Y Z affair? Yeah, I gotta double check this. He's yeah, he's with everything. He he's outrageous in his relations with the U.S. Yeah, it's wild that it's it's wild that he's allowed to exist in France the way he does. <laughs> yeah, and Napoleon also a, a man who's no fan of him. You know he. He right, constantly says in his writings, like I don't like this asshole. He's <laughs> duplicitous. He's like he's lived too long, basically. Like, how'd you make it this far mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. being like, without being a great man like Napoleon or like a field marshal or something? Because he comes off a little sneaky. Yeah, <laughs> Napoleon. I mean, Napoleon's mindset is like rather material, like militaristic. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? there's no denying that and like that is how he sort of organized society that's why sort of like technical innovations fall behind in some areas but in some areas they persist you know like the idea of like a bivouac system in a military encampment is a napoleonic innovation but at the same time like medicine that's being pursued in paris is like kind of put on the back burner because it's not directly affecting the war effort you know there's advantages and drawbacks to both to that kind of mindset i guess you know it's not perfect obviously but yeah it, it it's funny because i think it is wild to see this like sort of reactionary portrayal of him but at the same time he's he's a nice character i'll give him that yeah yeah he's likable emmanuel Ciaz is uh shown in this movie he's he's an interesting character too um yeah again, i don't know <laughs> wish i could yeah again wish i could get like more of like the field marshals and stuff too like you see yes. like marat you see nay you see these guys who are like very like noticeable from like because you also see like um david the painter you know yeah at the coronation you see him painting the coronation and then you mm-hmm. see napoleon like a body double sitting for napoleon mm-hmm. for the coronation painting right which is it's very interesting because like this is a very famous painter who like i mean this is napoleon crossing the alps and all these these images that we associate with the napoleonic era are drawn by this one guy and like all the big moments in napoleon's like civil life are drawn by this one guy you know and even on military campaign so it's it's crazy to see like yeah you you see the sort of like well yeah this legend is sort of built but it's also like and I think like the, the choice to do the body double scene is like, yeah, it's also sort of fake. You know what I mean? It, <laughs> yeah. It's very funny. I do like the coronation scene too. I'll give it that. He got, he got him, got him right. Taking the crown from the Pope. Yep. I, I don't know that the quote's right. I never. <laughs> yeah. I haven't checked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I, for some reason, I don't feel confident that Napoleon said I found the crown of France in the gutter. <laughs> picked it up cleaned it off and put it on my own head it doesn't seem right yeah I'm not 100% sure. uh, so we have this oh yeah um this is where the diplomatic stuff with Talleyrand. yeah Tal- Talleyrand has this conversation with napoleon about alexander the first and this is after the outburst with the british 
Yes. When he basically convinced it, it's made to seem like Talleyrand convinces him to become emperor. Yes. Which, from even from my like point of view, like doesn't seem like I don't think that's true because like, I don't think that's in Talleyrand's interest. I don't know. Yeah, I'm. I'd, I'd be I'd curious. Have, yeah, again, I'd have to double check. Like, I, I'm not the genius on Napoleon history, you know. But I know enough. But like, I don't know like Talleyrand history because like, who the fuck knows what his position was from day one to day two? <laughs> yeah, like Talleyrand is in there in the movie enough <laughs> to be somewhat of a character, but I'm not sure what Scott actually makes of him. Yeah, so, because yeah. I mean, he's the one who arranges the marriage to the yes, yeah, the Austrian Empress. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is wild because it's like he's the one who, you know, makes a call like, oh, well, if you make yourself emperor. But it's like, I don't know that that's necessarily all he's doing. I don't think that is all he's doing no. at that point. I mean, Napoleon's the most popular. He gets, I do think he's kind of implicated in the um, conspiracy to become consul general. But then, like, once he realizes what his potential is, like, yeah, go for it. You know, I don't think it necessarily, I, I think Talleyrand maybe. Who knows at this point in history, but like he could have helped, you know, he could have egged that on a bit, but like at the same time, I don't see like what's necessarily in it from Talleyrand, you know? Yeah. The man's trying to survive and he does survive, but like, I don't think he could see all these things being like leading to his survival, you know? And yeah, I do appreciate it though, because it shows just how much of a weirdo he is. And (laughs) I wish they explained more that like this guy's been around forever. Yeah. You know? They should have shown him like with Marie Antoinette in the first scene. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm sorry you're getting a head job of this. Yeah. If you explain that this guy's been around forever, or if it was like him delivering the messages to like the restored Bourbon, uh, you know, the next Louis, who he's, yeah. you know, when he's, when Napoleon comes back, if it was him, yeah, the, it would, it would really like, if there's ways to drive that point home that I feel they missed. We we don't see Talleyrand after Napoleon's first exile, right? Um, no, I don't believe so. I don't, I don't think. think he comes back. No, which would have been hilarious. Yeah, just let him pop up. At that point, the field marshals became diplomats. I mean, it's Davu who mm. negotiates um, Napoleon's return to the coast to actually meet with the British after Waterloo. Hmm. It's the field marshals who have taken that position, and. I, Again, Napoleon, not a huge fan of Talleyrand, as nobody in charge of France is at any time, really. (laughs) Which is the best part about him, I think. (laughs) Nobody likes him, but he's kind of just around, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not like a Lafayette or somebody like that, who even, like, Lafayette has to go languish in, like, Austrian prison for, like, six years with his whole family. Mm. Where it's like, yeah, don't come back here. You know, everybody remembers, like... the Champ de Mars incident and stuff like that. You fired on a bunch of net, you know, on a bunch of Republican protesters. You know, people like won't have it back. And I mean, he's another popular. I'm, I, I don't know how popular he is, but like maybe he is enough of a popular figure to like challenge Napoleon at some point, you know, mm-hmm. or be some type of like popular counterweight to him as far as like the military goes. Because at the time, the National Guard is associated with Lafayette. You know, huh. again, yeah. returning to Les Mis, even in Les Mis, it, it, Lafayette is is back. I believe one of the lines in the books is like, um, Lamarck to the Pantheon, Lafayette to the lampposts. 
<laughs> so, you know, he is still a figure in national politics all through this time. So I think that it, it is like a sort of competition to keep out of military type competitor because he essentially controls what is the internal guard of France. But it, it is interesting how these characters do sort of hang around or reemerge even, even though they shouldn't be able to, you know? Yeah. And Lafayette so, doesn't get really booted until people aren't like really offended by the Jacobins anymore. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot. We just got to uh, Battle of Austerlitz. Austerlitz, yes. Um, okay, Frozen Lakes. Okay. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> the Battle of Austerlitz. Napoleon launches, I believe, one, maybe two corps down at a village on the right flank. Um, that is where, that is what essentially is portrayed in the movie as the guys sort of in the encampment ambushing the Austrian, you know, the, for, the bait for the Austrians essentially because um, you see Napoleon sort of baits them in on that one. But the truth is, like, that was way off of the right flank in another, like, tiny village, a farm village. And then what happened was Napoleon actually comes up from the center with, like, a larger military than is, is expected by the Austrians and the Russians. And um, he takes what's called the Pratzen Heights, which is a large hill, like, overlooking which is essentially where they have him firing from in the movie, right? They have him already on the Prats and Heights. But the oh. thing is, he takes the Prats and Heights from the, I believe, from the Russians. Um, oh, okay. And what he does is he cuts off the Austrians from the other side. Because huh. the Austrians' original plan is to cut through Napoleon's right flank, where it looks weak, where they're holding him off in the village, and then come through on the rest of the actual army. And Napoleon ends up sort of he gets because of like this is the first and you see it, it's said in the movie a little bit the core system right mm. there's a new system of military organization where each field marshal is in charge of their own core which is um it includes artillery it includes cavalry not you know not much maybe like two battalions of cavalry two battalions like two sets of artillery battalions and then the rest is infantry but the thing is that you and then there's especially you know there's people like Ney or Marat who are like cavalry officers and they do have like the cavalry reserves or whatever but the thing is that these militaries can move much faster they can make more independent decisions you know they're not bogged down by waiting for like the order from the emperor at the tent at this point you know they eventually We'll talk about Waterloo later, but um, the core system allows them to move much faster because they're independent units. You know, they're not trying to focus on the whole military. I mean, each field marshal has his own corps. And at Austerlitz, the distraction works on the right flank and Napoleon moves up to in the middle. And I think it's um, Marat and Ney who come to reinforce him. And there's just because the corps system moves faster than any modern European military at that time, you know, there's suddenly reinforcements they don't count on. Napoleon takes the present heights. And then this part's debated. 
maybe okay. fires maybe. some cannonballs into the water. Oh, okay. And I've heard a couple hundred Austrians and maybe like a dozen horses die in the water. And I've heard none die in the water. Oh, man. It's so this is really debatable. vague. Or uh, maybe they die in the water and like it's not a cannonball that puts them through the water. The plan is definitely not we get them out onto the frozen lake and then kill them all. <laughs> yeah, that's not the center of his plan. No. This isn't plotted out. You mm-hmm. wouldn't have, like, this is the crazy, you wouldn't have, like, an army going out in the middle of a field that could be a frozen lake. Like, that's, no, like, it was a retreat. terrain. Yeah, it was a retreat. What yeah. Happened, yeah, what happens is after Napoleon takes the present heights, there's nowhere else for the Austrians to retreat, but over, like, some frozen ponds and, like, it's not even really, like, lakes like that. It's not deep like yeah. that. It's, it's basically ponds. Like, people freeze to death because, like, they're fucking europeans in like 18 1805 they can't swim mm-hmm. and they have like 50 pounds on their back you know what i mean like that's just a part of life at that point like you've never seen a river probably you're an idiot <laughs> you know but yeah it, that is not i do i do think <laughs> napoleon said like i killed like ten thousand by drowning them in the water though in his own propaganda that, that's great so i think that's why the message <laughs> spreads and even, <laughs> I guess, even with, like, the the disputed stories, some veterans of Australis will say that is what happened. Mm, okay. Interesting. So it's, it's a very, like, popular myth from a time when, like, you had to wear, like, bright-ass uniforms to be able to see who your own, like, comrades were through, like, you know, non-smokeless ammo. You know, the whole mm-hmm. thing, the whole battlefield's a cloud at that point. Who knows what happened, you know? But, yeah, Napoleon, I do believe, reports, like, 10,000 Austrians dead by, like, drowning in the pre- after he takes the present heights by bombarding the lakes. But I, do, I don't think that happens. I, I don't know the scale of it. Maybe, I think some do drown. But, like, again, whether that's a result of cannonballs or not, who knows? That's not the genius of Austerlitz. It's the genius of Austerlitz is like the total re- reorganization of the military under Napoleon. And that is with the field marshal commanding each, you know, each court and having, I mean, shit, probably like 12 by that point. You know, you have these giant groups of units and they each have their own artillery and they each have their own cavalry. You know, this is a new thing where you're not just marching them all in one unit. And I, again, it's mentioned in the movie where it's sort of touched on for like one second. We're like, oh, the Austrians are trying to cop, which is funny because like the, the, the military organization system gets remembered as like the Austrian system. <laughs> Even though, yeah, it's not theirs, you know, um, because what do they call it? I'm not recalling. Yeah, I'm trying to think, They, but it is named after the austrian right you know what i'm talking about right yes yeah i i've heard the austrian military system right there is there is an austrian yeah it's yeah and it's based on like the napoleonic wars yeah yeah and that's that's napoleon's system which is funny because like the movie mentions it like in passing where it's like yeah this is oh they're gonna try and copy me but they suck at it i mean yeah the duelists shows Napoleonic 
military structure much better than this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do love the duelist, and the duelist is much more like it, because it happens in such a vacuum. I think it's much more historically accurate. Like the big ass, like Harvey Keitel's big ass braid and shit like that. Like that's to resist like saber chops of the neck and stuff. You know, these are like, whereas like the grenadier in this fucking shit, you know, the one who's fucking Josephine, he gets like this tiny ass little like Anakin Skywalker braid, you know, <laughs> it's it's very strange. But like, yeah, like they had like these big braids and like the way the dress, I do like the duelist because the way the dress changes over those few years shows like the reorganization of the military. You know what I mean? Because these are two people over like a 10, 12 year period who keep meeting up with each other. And like the, the way they look is different every time. And it is really interesting because it shows how much like the organization of society changed at that time. This one, it's just Napoleon's 50 years old the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And then, okay, what happens after Austerlitz? After that, we have. Well, okay, so Napoleon. Me- yeah, we might as well skip the Austrian Emperor Francis II meeting uh, Napoleon for wine. I mean, yeah, yeah, we know what happens. It's history. Um, uh, Napoleon has to knock up a mistress to see if he's infertile or not. Yeah, he's gonna see if he's got to blame his wife or not. Yeah, yeah, he bangs an eighteen-year-old at his mother's again. Yeah. The weird mother shit. Yeah. It's like a fucking Norman Bates type of like aura. You know, like, oh, just make him a freak about his mom. You yeah, know? make all this about sex. Yeah, and just, uh, yeah, we find out Napoleon's not infertile. Napoleon gets divorced from Josephine. This is when he meets Alexander about his sister, right? Yep. Yeah, meets Alexander about his sister. Alexander doesn't want to give off his one sister because apparently she's too young mm-hmm. from this these cultures that are like eating children or whatever. <laughs> you know, but the Anglo-Saxons are eating children, but like he won't give away his 15-year-old sister. And then Napoleon still some, for whatever reason, believes him that he hates the British more than him. Which is such a strange, yeah, I mean, it is a mistake, and it is a sort of mistake he made, like, thinking they'd abide by the continental system, but, like, I don't think it was that blatant. Yeah. Just, oh, you hate your cousins, right? I'm some guy who's, who doesn't belong here. <laughs> you want to kill him, right? Like, I don't think even Napoleon's, like, I, why would he be that naive, you know? It's yeah, like telling him the Jacobins are about to be overthrown. It's like it's such a weird role for the person who's like telling this information to play. But yeah, we have the, the proposal, and then we have him marrying the Austrian Empress, which again, not mentioned that who she is, how he finds her. Yeah, that's kind of like tail end of the conversation with Alexander the First. What you um, see is yeah. the Austrian emissary laughing. At Talleyrand. Yes. Yes. That's the last time you see Talleyrand. Yeah. Yeah, you see the Austrian emissary laughing at Talleyrand for proposing that uh, that Napoleon marry one of the sisters of the emperor. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) And then he does anyway. 
Yeah, and it's like, I mean, th this is politics. This is how you try to form alliances. Um, and it is a little weird. So, like, Scott has Napoleon asking Alexander the first, um, what can I do to make sure that we're that you consider me like a brother, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I let's be brothers against the British. Um, anti-British band of brothers. And yeah, right this devolves. Yeah, and this devolves <laughs> to yeah, and th this kind of dissolves until, uh, you know, when Napoleon goes into uh the throne room in Moscow, Napoleon's like calling out for Alexander the first, like, boy needs a spanking. Yeah, it is <laughs> very quickly like, brushed over that like the continental system just completely collapsed i will like, say it is mentioned. i'll give him i'll give really scott credit it's mentioned right it is not mentioned in most like american tellings of any like history of napoleon yeah so it's interesting yeah. to see that on the big screen where it's a, at least like the continental system as a concept is mentioned yeah the failures of it are like much more complex than like oh alexander lied to me yeah, there, there's some of the rhetoric of like when Talleyrand suggests to Napoleon, hey, you should be a king, and Napoleon laughs at the ward king, yeah. like making fun yeah. of the ward. And then later, there's, you know, when Napoleon meets with uh, Francis II of Austria, Napoleon's like, finally, another emperor. <laughs> so there's like hints of like, yeah, this is the imperial system that Napoleon's aiming for, but yeah. Yeah, but like you know, yeah, again, like you said with the scene with Talleyrand, like he laughs. He doesn't care. Yeah. Like he thinks it's absurd. Well, and, but then he, like you see him a minute later and he's going for it. But is that because is that I didn't know how to read that scene because like was it because Talleyrand suggested king instead of emperor? That's the thing. And Napoleon I, wanted the emperor thing instead. That's the thing. I don't think so. I think it's like because the, the word emperor is not mentioned. Right. You know, it's it's the fact that the word man, emperor is not mentioned that makes me think like, oh, Napoleon's supposed to think, again, putting a weird onus on Talleyrand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, Napoleon seems to think like the idea of even being equal to the nobility of Europe is a ridiculous thing. Right? As like a Corsican uh, who's in the French military and like the consul, even as a consul, the first consul, it doesn't seem like it's something that's like crossed his mind. It seems like Talleyrand plants the idea, but then a moment later, he's basically telling like Josephine, pack your bags, we're going to Versailles. Right. You know, and it is strange and I, because the fact that the scene doesn't show him endorsing it in any way mm. makes me like really ambiguous and like what you're supposed to read from it because it seems like it, the idea is like ridiculous to him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But Alexander, of course, is a child, so he betrays him. He goes to Moscow. <laughs> it is funny having this young czar in this movie with this 50-year-old emperor. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of funny. It is kind of hard for me to gate because I can't tell the passage of time when I see uh, Joaquin Phoenix, but then when I, yeah. It it is but the ages are weird. Alexander's basically yeah, he's seventeen the whole movie. The whole movie, it, including <laughs> when he's uh dancing with Josephine towards the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, which is again, it, it's 
Okay, so obviously <laughs> we have the loss in Russia. Yeah. Um, I think they did a good job of portraying like the Cossack cavalry and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, that was fun. The sort of like guerrilla warfare that was going on in Russia at that point that the French really had no response for, uh, much like in Spain, right. you know, the, and the regular, the fact that like the Cossacks are a regular cavalry, I think is a real, you know, it was a real disadvantage because Napoleon's or military was so meticulously organized, you know, having like this is a regular cavalry who sort of had their own field commanders and stuff like that. It, it makes for a hard time and they were allowed to do these sort of guerrilla attacks and same with the Spanish and, it, it throws off like the idea of the Napoleonic War, where you're standing in these giant lines because you had smooth bore muskets, basically. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I it, it's interesting, but I wish again something I wish they'd focus more on. You know, it, because through the whole retreat, Napoleon's plagued by the Russians and the Czechs and everything like that. You know, he's continue and as he continues to fall back to what he thinks are supply depots they're cut off and taken over by like the austrians or the russians or whoever's around and it's the retreat is mostly blamed on like what the cold the for like everybody dying yeah pretty much i don't think yeah i don't think they show too much but the retreat is just as bloody as the entry into like because there's nothing to steal right yeah everything's been burned down on your way into russia there's nothing yeah. left to loot on your way back. So they have the line where Napoleon's like, we're going to find the czar in St. Petersburg. We're going to march from Moscow to St. Petersburg. And his, you know, his, uh, one of his generals, I don't know which one says, you know, our horses are not trained for the winter. And they show, th there's a funny shot of I think some that's of Napoleon's horses like, trotting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a composite of Ney and Moreau. Or Moreau. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. At some points, they seem to become like composites of each other, like mm -hmm. different field marshals. But yeah, I, and again, the only one you really recognize through the whole movie is Davu, the big hat and the glasses. Yeah. But yeah. you do see, I believe when you go to Waterloo, you see Ney beside him. Um, Ney is like the, mustache on the sides the red hair it's red hair you know and i but at some points it seems like he's also blended with marat and it's just kind of like pushed together in some scenes and some scenes it's not you know what i mean mm -hmm. i think there's some scenes where they're just trying to recreate the paintings so they put in whoever the fuck was in the paintings but go ahead no just that yeah the the march to st petersburg and then the retreat is kind of yeah uh makes it get out. i mean a uh, side note um if you want to see an like a really fun i don't know how historically accurate depiction of the battle of borodino um the 1966 uh soviet adaptation of war and peace shows Ooh. this battle and it's great i just saw it a couple days ago send me um, the link for that when we're done yeah it's it's uh part three the year 1812 and what's interesting too is you see napoleon in that film it's war and peace so napoleon is the great antichrist yeah and but it's interesting napoleon is actually depicted as like a competent uh kind of 
inspiring guy, even though he is evil antichrist guy who is a scourge on humanity. He's a terror. Yeah, he is a terror. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. He's like, he's a rightful <laughs> thing to be terrified of, right? Yeah, but he's and still. Think, I didn't kill Hegel in the game. Goddamn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, no, yeah, I think that there is a lot of like good good films about it. I think there's a lot of good films that I think Waterloo is another good one. You know, even if it's a loss, like it is another good one where it's it focuses on the the interest intricacies and both like the scale of the battle, which I don't. I feel like you get Austerlitz here, but you don't get much more than that, you know? Because Bordino shows, again, it's an overlay. You yeah. know, it's it's a very quick scene where it's not really described it like this is a, and I, the shortness of the battle scenes, it really makes them feel much more rapid, right? These are things that lasted from like dawn till dusk, essentially. Yeah. I mean, Waterloo itself, I think like they did wait out the rain, but I went from like early in the morning or late, late in the morning until like late in the evening, you know? Mm-hmm. These are things that took all day. And I think you kind of miss that. Like Austerlitz is like portrayed as like a five minute thing, which is very wild to me. Yeah. And yeah, you get the retreat from Russia is just kind of, it's not explained how Napoleon sort of kind of fucks off the elbow for a minute i mean it sort of is but it's, it's really sudden yeah, yeah he's exile on elbow and then that's again, really fast from yeah from the retreat there yeah again returns because like he's mad about his wife dancing with alexander or whatever <laughs> this time yeah 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 that's what drives me crazy is is you miss out on a huge like historical perspective of like this is not why he came back this motherfucker was emperor, yeah. man. Like he was coming back. Yeah, I I do like the scene of the aide running back up to uh, the restored Bourbon dynasty leaders. Oh, like, oh man, Louis the Seven- Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, again, though, a missed opportunity because like Louis flees. You know. Yes. Yeah. The during the hundred days. He's immediately back in England when he finds out about that. He's like, okay, well, sorry. You know? Um, yeah, we see him in Paris, and then we see him in England somewhere, and then that's it of him. That's yeah. all we see of him. Yeah. And it's crazy because it's like, you should explain that that's where he went. Right. This guy knew he was so unpopular that like he left back to a country that's like the historical rival of France. Yeah, and it's interesting that like the film gets across that Napoleon is popular among the army, but every time he talks to the soldiers, he's not very charismatic. He's mm. kind of aloof and whatnot. Yeah, which was the thing that was he was very like familiar with the soldiers. I mean, he called I believe he called the Imperial Guards like my sons and things like that. You know, he was very much more like he was much more comfortable than that than displayed in this movie and you yeah you sort of miss it out for like instead you get these like weird like autist moments where like pulling the cannonball out of the horse and like give this to mother and stuff like that you know or like napoleon feeding his soldiers with bread like they're birds yeah yeah (laughs) 
you get some bread you get some bread this is my own uh ration right and that's the thing is like (laughs) he would be out there like that but it would never be like portrayed weird aloof yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. and it is another thing to remember too those like you also got to loot like a motherfucker during these times you know and um despite basically every wagon and like you know knapsack being tossed on the roadside on the way back from russia like when you read the accounts of like imperial guards and things from the time they're like well i have a cross that's gold and silk solid gold and silver i have a chinese uh silk dress that i stole from somebody's apartment i've also turned like this nice night coat into like my overcoat and like things like that like they've just stolen like you know gold and silver lace like silk like it, it is funny because like this is the first military to really make that like oh yeah and again this is like another benefit of the corp system is do on your own supply yourselves yes yeah you know what i mean and it's yeah, the not war- really a policy yeah. before that yeah the the soviet war and peace adaptation does a great job at showing looting in the middle of battles um in the in the scots napoleon though like okay moscow is empty and then literally empty gets lit on fire it's really empty and eerie like a ai abandoned moscow yeah yeah it really is isn't it it's it's very strange like when he enters the throne room like for some reason birds have suddenly made their home in there and they're just shitting on the throne and stuff like that yeah i it just doesn't feel real no i mean i know it's supposed to feel surreal but it doesn't just does not feel real and the thing with like also with the invasion of moscow like the fires were burning as they entered i was wondering about that yeah they were already yeah. burning and then there was nothing they could do about it by the time that you know everyone had gotten in but yeah he definitely didn't go to sleep in the throne and wake up to the fire burning the next day yeah that whole sequence is just odd and then i believe it's but i do believe it's um smolensk which they try and fall back to which is the nearest like supply depot held by the polish and that's gone Mm. but yeah it it is strange to see just because i believe smolensk is where they plan to winter um but yeah the fires are burning by the time they get there they already know that moscow's on its way out yeah again you gotta see the soviet war and peace adaptation like it's just more compelling and realistic looking at least even if not accurate necessarily but. To watch waterloo too <laughs> yeah we got to watch waterloo yeah uh, yeah and that's where we'll end it i guess is waterloo um yeah <laughs> they really emphasize on napoleon blowing it because of the rain which mm-hmm. i guess like monday morning quarterback i do agree with <laughs> you know hey charge through the rain because then the uh prussians won't show up on time and also um, I believe it was Grouchy was in charge of the cavalry that was supposed to be coming to reinforce Napoleon, who got bogged down with the uh, Prussians mm. outside of Waterloo. Um, but I mean, Waterloo, even Wellington himself says, you know, this was a close thing. You know, this is which they don't make it seem like. It, it's very strange how they portray it. Um, when instead of like you know, you have the British infantry 
nowhere near as like well equipped. Well, they're well equipped, but they're nowhere near as like fast as shots or like as efficient as French infantry. But then when you see the cavalry charge them, they come out from behind the barricades and things like that, where it's like, this is why you already have a bunch of sticks pointing forward, dumbass. Like, why would you come out of this? Yeah. And then they form the rectangular formations, anti-cavalry formations. Yeah. Those, those squares, like those unit squares like that. And which is correct, but like, it's when you're already in the field, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. They were behind like palisade walls that they had built with like the you know with all these you know giant um like pikes sticking out. You didn't have to do anything. And there is a difference between you know it, it is cool because it does show like a sort of difference between Napoleonic artillery and British artillery is Napoleonic artillery was about volume. Um Napoleonic Infantry was often about volume. Um, Napoleon was, I believe, the first to use the three-line formation where the third line would be loading muskets as the first two lines fired. Hmm. I think that's one. Uh, um, I'd have to check which battle it was, but I believe that's what one, one of the early battles with Napoleon was. I think it was Davout's corps that showed up that began firing. You know, two lines would fire and one line would be reloading the muskets so you'd have... a basically one and a half times rate of fire compared to like the brown best which the british were using and the british were much more accurate with cannons they were they would typically try and target other artillery positions but bonaparte's bonaparte's priority was always just bounce that shit off the ground right in front of the fucking infantry like see what happens give that nice give it a nice spin and see what the fuck happens you know what i mean that's why i say like he used cavalry in conjunction with the artillery to just try and get people to square up and things like that whereas once that was adopted as a regular thing like he knew how to counter it right away because i mean he was the pioneer of it so it it, it is interesting to see but it again everything i wish there could be more emphasis on some of these interesting aspects although i do like the ending on the ship <laughs> where all the little child slaves are talking to him. <laughs> yeah. It's like they love him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the kids love him. <laughs> and hearing him being like, look, it's hard to dictate authority. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. It's like you, sometimes you pay for the mistakes of your inferiors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all the like, yeah. Yeah. And I do love the Joaquin Phoenix touch of like housing breakfast while you're doing that shit. You know? Yeah. Breakfast is important in this movie. Yeah. yeah, just smashing the your British Navy <laughs> breakfast as you're telling like all the deckhands. Like everybody else is fucking up. They really fucked me over. Do you think Napoleon would say, you know, the British are really good at breakfast? You think he would have said that? I, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think there's some <laughs> admiration there for him. Yeah, I think he definitely had admiration as much as he had anger at him. You know, again, it was... There is one part that's correct about this movie, I think, to take from it is he did sort of want to be seen as an equal, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. why the honorific was applied to him. I think that um, it's important to remember that he did want to be seen as the equal. And it's just like the absolute, you know, it's the horror and the sort of taboo when it comes to like the European nobility that like can't accept this, you know? It's not Napoleon's fault. It's like these people... It's these people's fault who ended up getting le- liberal revolutions anyway. 
but it's just the British serve a weird position, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're sort of outside everything. It's hard to say, like, they're the first to industrialize, and somehow that gives them this position of just being, like, the most like us, I guess. Yeah. But overall, I love the movie. It's fun. Yeah. It is fun. The pig noises. <laughs> Catboy, Napoleon. Yeah. The the horse pulling the cannonball out of the horse. I do love it. <laughs> and again, the, the punching the guys through the door as he does the coup. You know, brother, you know, brother threatening to cut your head off. Like, I do love it. Yeah. It was a good movie. I, I would say people should go see it. It's just none of it's correct. <laughs> That's yeah, the biggest yeah. thing. Yeah. But um I will say before we go sign off here, I do have an email back from the ILW nice. you historian. So we should be back next time with an interview. And until then, uh see if you can see Napoleon more times than me, because I've seen it twice. <laughs> Any last words for our emperor? Nope, that's it.